Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments podcast, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. Uh, In this episode, we are looking at Matthew chapter 14, verse 13 through 17, 27, where we encounter a number of episodes. Twice, Jesus feeds the crowds. He walks on water. He heals a Canaanite woman. He gives Peter the keys of the kingdom and then soon after rebukes him. Uh, Then we have the transfiguration. And then Jesus pulls a coin eventually out of a fish's mouth uh, instead of out of a rabbit's hat. Uh, We're joined today to help us navigate a bunch of these uh, episodes. We're joined today by Dr. Patrick Schreiner. Now, Dr. Patrick Schreiner is Associate Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. He is the author of a number of books, including a few on Matthew, so The Body of Jesus, a spatial analysis of the kingdom in Matthew, and then this one, Matthew, Disciple and Scribe, the first gospel, and its portrait of Jesus. And I love the reference to portraiture here in the title. One of my favorite assignments that I do with my undergrads here at Samford is to have them split into groups and each of them paint the kind of portrait that a different gospel writer paints of Jesus. It's like watercolors in class? Well, I let them use whatever they want, and most of them use digital uh, resources to do that. But to get across the fact that the different gospel writers are depicting Jesus in different ways from one another. I'm hoping to one day walk through your class and see all the watercolors. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but actually, Patrick, you've also uh, done some visual stuff, right? With your Mm -hmm. uh, visual word, illustrated outlines of the New Testament books. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So when I would teach overview courses on different Bible books, one of the things I do is just go up to the whiteboard and kind of outline it visually to give a sense of what the argument of that book is. Uh, I, I find like, like I, using, using stick figures or sometimes stick figures. <laughs> a lot of times they would just be boxes with, you know, like words, like here's the kind of main point of this section and how it connects to the next okay. one. And uh, I think that many of the biblical books you know, they're so long and complicated. We're not used to have, we're used to TikTok and Twitter and really short things and these long kind of drawn out arguments. They're difficult to follow. So uh, I started doing that. And then we hired an artist and kind of drew out images of the different sections of the scripture. So I find that when you open a commentary and you get, um, you know, one and then sub point A, sub point A point one or whatever it is, not, not not that helpful, but maybe if you can give a little bit more of a visual outline, that can be um, more helpful to people. So we, sure. we did all the New Testament books, love to do the Old Testament, but I, I'm not an expert in the Old Testament. And um, yeah, we'll, we're just putting that a hold for right now. What is it about Matthew particularly that attracted you? I mean, you've spent a lot of time thinking and writing on Matthew. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, canonically that it was put first. Uh, we, I don't think it was the first one written, but canonically that it was put first and it kind of becomes that seam or link to the Old Testament, that it's really a continuation of the Old Testament story. 
I think all the Gospels do that, but uniquely Matthew does, beginning with that genealogy. And so I think as you read the scriptures, initially probably the one of the biggest questions is how does the Old and New Testament relate? And I think Matthew is really just a masterclass on that. And really, there's a tendency, I think, for Protestants, I'm a Protestant, to kind of jump straight to Paul in terms of those relationships. But I think we need to sit with Jesus for a little longer. Um, and I think Jesus and Paul agree on these type of things. But I think uh, coming to something like the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus explains the law and the use of the law is really important. So I'd say that. And then I really like how he's very structured. Um, Mark sometimes confuses me with him just jumping around doing a bunch of different things. And <laughs> Matthew seems very intentional. And I like that. That's helpful for me. So sure. Now, uh, how does this section of Matthew that we're going to look at 1413 through 1727? How do you think it fits with the rest of the gospel with what comes before it and what comes after it? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I actually find 14, it's funny that you asked me to do it on 14 through 17, because um, I find this the hardest section to kind of get the, my arms around in terms of what's happening in the, in the whole of it. Yeah. It, it follows Mark um, pretty, pretty well here, where Matthew is more unique in the other sections. But um, having said that, I do think it's pretty clear that, you know, you have the introduction to Jesus in Matthew 1 through 4. In Matthew 5 through 7, he begins to teach. In Matthew 8 through 9, he begins to heal. And so you have who is Jesus and what is he going to do? And Matthew likes to pair what he does with what he says. And so, again, Matthew 5 through 7 is what he says, kind of his first teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And then you have his healings in Matthew 8 through 9. And then Matthew 10, he sends out his disciples. So you go and do likewise what I was just doing, spread the kingdom of God. Um, and this is where we have to really zero in to kind of understand this section. In Matthew 11 through 12, then, you kind of get responses to Jesus. And there's there's debate about what those responses are, but I think they're mainly negative responses. It begins with um, John the Baptist asking the question, are you the one that we've been waiting for? <laughs> and then Jesus goes to unresponsive towns, but, but then he says, hey, all the little children can come to me. My yoke is easy and light. There's the Sabbath controversy. There's the Beelzebub controversy. So I think it's mainly negative. And the reason I think it's mainly negative responses to Jesus is because the next chapter then is the, the really wisdom parables or the kingdom parables where Jesus has that kind of insider-outsider division. Like I tell you, I speak in parables because in one sense, there's a remnant in Israel that's going to listen and there's those that won't hear and understand. And so those kingdom parables become his explanation for the division within Israel, which that really sets us up to 14 through 17, because in 14 through 17, then you have more responses to Jesus, but Jesus begins to reveal truly who he is. And I think that you can really see that in walking on the water. They say, who is this guy? <laughs> he must be the son of God. And then you see Jesus, uh, Peter's confession of who Jesus is, and you see the, uh, the transfiguration. And I think, um, so responses and revelation of the Messiah and in light of the responses, Jesus reveals truly who he is. And in one sense, it's the founding of the church because Peter confesses that and he says, I'm going to build my church. And then if you go on in Matthew, you have really Matthew 18, 19, and 20 are more kind of teaching for the church and household codes for the church. 
And so you have, if you can kind of follow, that's a long answer, but that's kind of the the big picture of where it fits into. But I will admit that 14 through 17, as I said at the beginning, there's so many diverse stories that I think it's one of the hardest sections to really get like a clear, um, like what, what is the, if we were to like identify one main point. So that's why I say right, responses right. to Jesus and revelation of who Jesus is. Sure. Um, those are kind of my two kind of main like orbiting thoughts that I have around there. Okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, the other, one of the things I see that come up qu- uh, quite a bit in a number of these episodes is the uh, motif of bread. Yeah. I don't, you know, you have the two stories of the feeding of, of the 5,000 and the 4,000. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then you also have um, when there's an encounter between uh, Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes, right. About the tradition of the elders and about how they honor with lips. But then after that, you get uh, uh, basically Jesus talking about it's not the things that go into the, into, you know, the stomach that make you unclean, but the, but what comes out of your mouth. That's right. So you have that language, that language of food. Um, and then you have the Canaanite woman where we have the exchange yep. about the food from the table. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you have the feeding of the 5,000, or then it's the feeding of the 4,000. Um, and then Jesus talks about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? And they mm-hmm. don't understand, right? Yep. So yep. there's all these this kind of bread language or food language. Um, but I don't know that they all hang together in a kind of always, you know, <laughs> right. in a theologically, like, coherent way. So, like, it yeah. would be weird to just take all the bread things and make, like, a unified theological point about them. Sometimes they're just hanging together because here are yeah. some stories about bread, right? Right. And if you back up, even you have it's John. I know we're not doing this section, but I'm going to argue that to understand this section, we have to go back to 1550 or 1353. That's really where the kingdom parables end. And what Jesus does is he goes into Nazareth, his hometown, and they ask in 1555, isn't this the carpenter carpenter's son? So I think that sets up the whole section, actually, if you back up a little bit. Hmm. Who is this figure? Nazareth right. is rejecting him. And then you have kind of rejection, like foreshadowing of rejection where John the Baptist is beheaded because he's declaring what Herod is doing is unlawful. Right. And Jesus is going to do very similar things and Jesus is going to die like him. So all that to say, though, John the Baptist beheaded, that's another feast. <laughs> it's right. just it's a very dark feast. And then Jesus yeah. has feeding of the 5000. I think those right. two feasts should be paired. There's one okay. feast where he gives life. And then there's the Feast of Herod where he takes life. So there, there's something going on there. Um, but to, to your question, I have noted in class, there's, like you said, I'm glad you pointed this out. There's a ton of bread going on, bread imagery. <laughs> I, I haven't really known what to do with that. But I think John 6 can help us a little bit in terms of the, the bread is a symbol both for Jesus's teaching and for Jesus himself. And throughout this section, Jesus does kind of continue to teach kind of through his actions and he be kind of becomes the bread of life. So I, I don't know if that all like it, it brings all of the narratives together, right, sure. but it's kind of like an interesting like, wow, there's a lot of like some some sort of bread and teaching and bread of life, yeah. maybe theme going on here. 
I, I honestly would just admit that sure. I need to probably do more work on that to sure. say anything more specific sure. about it. But. Well, maybe Matthew is just hungry while he was. <laughs> it's it's kind of like Peter when you know he had the vision. He had the vision of of the food when he's hungry. I love that story. In Acts, right? <laughs> of course, he's going to have a vision about food while he's hungry. It's happened to us all, hasn't it? Uh, That's right. Now, what about within this section? So you mentioned one challenge with this section is just finding some kind of coherent point to these texts. Uh, do you have any parts of this section that you particularly struggle with that you find particularly difficult to interpret? Yeah, I mean, it's a longer section, so I could probably name a lot. Um, but the first one that comes to mind is in 1526, when he calls the Canaanite woman a dog, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's really difficult because it immediately raises questions of racism or sexism and what is Jesus doing here? And that's just like a really... I think it's one of the trickiest passages in all of Matthew, honestly, uh, to really understand what's happening. And then I think this is going to come up later, the purity laws in 15, 10 through 20. That's difficult. And then I would say, um, you know, how to understand how son of God is being used in this text. Hmm. Um, is it more of a kingship term? Psalm 2, 7. Is it um, one with Yahweh? Uh, more eternal begottenness, or is it both and, and what lens are we looking at, at that through? So there's, there's a lot tricky, but those are some things I'd say. In this section, we have two stories of Jesus feeding the crowds. So he feeds 5,000 in 14, 13 to 21, and then 4,000 in 15, 32 to 39. So what is the significance of these feeding stories? Do they evoke episodes in the Old Testament? And if so, why is this so important to Matthew that he repeats a similar story more than once? Yeah, good question. Yeah, I think a lot of people when they read this at first, they're like, wait, he just did feeding. <laughs> why, why is he doing another feeding? So maybe beginning with just why, why is Jesus feeding more generally? Um, in the Old Testament, uh, Yahweh through Moses fed his people in the wilderness. And in, I think it's 1413, if I'm correct, you notice they're in a remote or desolate place. So that's a wilderness type area. So that's very much, I think, Matthew's evoking the wilderness story. And so Jesus is kind of being the new Moses type figure who's feeding um, the, the new Israel in the wilderness. Um, so he's the new Moses figure, but I'd also argue he's the uh, Yahweh type figure who's actually feeding his, his people as well. It also goes back to Elisha in uh, 2 Kings, I think chapter 4, men come and bring loaves of grain to Elisha um, and they give it to them to eat. But the servants say, hey, how he says, feed all these people, feed 100 of these people. And uh, the, they're like, how can we do this? And Elisha just is like, yeah, they're going to be able to eat and they're going to have some leftover. And even that little phrase, they're going to have some leftover, Matthew picks that up. So Jesus is very much stepping into the tradition of the prophets in terms of feeding his people. But th then you ask the question, why, why are there two? I, I didn't get into this in the structure of this section, but I, I think what's happening here is that there's a very clear transition from a Jewish feeding to a Gentile feeding, and actually from Jewish responses to Gentile responses. And so um, in around chapter 15, where that other feeding is, if you just back up a little bit, 
he's withdrawing into the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is a Gentile territory. Uh, then he encounters the Canaanite woman. Um, and then in 15, chapter 15, verse 31, after he does healings, it's interesting that the people gave glory to the God of Israel. That little phrase there, that's not the way Jewish people would speak. That's an outside, that seems to be outsider language. They give glory to the God of Israel. And so you have you have enough clues here, I think, kind of leading up to the feeding of the 4,000, that that is a Gentile feeding. And I would say that's supported, actually, by the number of the feeding, because um, you have the feeding of the 5,000 and 12 baskets are picked up. So I think that's a symbol for Israel. And then you have the feeding of the 4,000 and seven baskets are then picked up afterwards. That's a, a symbol for completeness. And I would say 4,000, too, I'm getting a little allegorical on you, but the 4,000... <laughs> I think if you go back in the Old Testament scriptures, the 4,000 relates to kind of the four corners of the earth um, and, and kind of that symbol of the four winds and the completeness of the earth. Uh, and so they're, they're, the four kind of stands for completeness, and I think the 4,000 is intentional. I'm not saying um, that it's not actually 4,000 that he feeds or it's not 5,000 that he feeds. I just think those numbers are also symbolic in some sense sure. and then the other text i'd go back to in the old testament is isaiah 25 uh, verses 6 through 10 where it says on this mountain isaiah says the lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat and so there's a very clear indication that god himself will feed all nations on mount zion so i think that's if we go back to moses we go back to elisha we go back to the Isaiah, kind of Isaiah prophecies of a new banquet that's coming. You can see that Jesus is both caring for his people, the Jewish people, but he's also caring for outsiders. And you, that, that's, that's a theme that began in the genealogy. The Magi are the first one to worship him. Mm-hmm. And now Jesus is caring for all people. So that, in that sense, remember at the beginning, I said this is the founding of the church. Jesus is establishing I think um, his his new people in some sense, which includes Israelites, but also Gentiles as well. So those who are responding well to him, he's reaching out to them, uh, and so he's kind of he's somewhat creating a new community. How do you? This is important. I mean, you you brought up bread at the beginning, but how do you create a new community? Usually, it's around food. It's around the table, and so I think there's a sense in which he's doing that, um, and then you're going to have Peter's confession shortly following that. So. Great. Well, why don't we uh, move on to chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, where we have the story of Jesus walking on the water. And Peter walks out to him, but then, right, while Jesus is walking on the water, but then he gets afraid and begins to sink, and he needs Jesus to rescue him, right? He calls out to Jesus to save him. Uh, Now, again, kind of like we talked about with the feeding stories, we thought about some of the Old Testament evocations, what are some of the significant Old Testament passages that you think are in the background and what's their what's their significance? Yeah, so like I just mentioned, New Exodus themes, walking on the water or walking through waters. I think that's a key indication that Jesus is coming as this new kind of prophet, Moses, redeemer type figure. Mm-hmm. You go back to the, uh, the prophets themselves and they're saying a new Exodus will occur. But I do think it's significant that Jesus is not walking through the water, okay. but he's walking on the water. Okay. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, the waters were kind of the chaos. Um, the sea was the place of the Greeks. So Jesus is treading on the sea to show that he has all authority 
uh, over all spaces, the land and the sea. And if you go back to the Old Testament, actually the Hebrew Bible assigns that authority to God himself, Yahweh himself. So you look at a text like Job 9, 8, I think that says something like, it's Yahweh who treads on the waters or, or something like that. Psalm 77, Habakkuk 3.15. There's, there's texts like that that are very clear that it's Yahweh as the creator of all things who has control and sovereignty over the water. So by Jesus walking on the waters, I think he's indicating to his disciples, yes, I am the new Moses, but I'm, I'm coming from a very confessional perspective, but sure. I'm, more, I'm more than that. And I think if you look at that text, um, verse 27, uh, they were afraid that it was a ghost. And immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, have courage. It is I. I am is kind of that. I mean, like that. Mm -hmm. So you've got the walking on the waters. You've got the I am going back to Exodus 314 in the burning bush. And so, uh, you know, responses and revelation of the Messiah, Jesus is revealing. <laughs> so link these two stories together. Remember, he goes into Nazareth and they said, whose son is this? And then what does Jesus do? Well, he feeds them on a mountain in this place, just like Yahweh did in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And then he walks on the water and he says, it is I. So I think he's already like leaving his disciples like, okay, who, who do you really think I am? I'm not just the carpenter's son. I'm the son of David. I'm in the tradition of Moses. And I, I would argue he's even more than that. And so these stories are, are indicating that, um, you know, I think when we come to this story, a lot of times our focus is on Peter and Peter's response. And I think we should focus on Peter in some sense, because Jesus is leading his people on the new Exodus. He's welcoming them. And Peter has this sense of great faith. And then he doubts and Jesus still reaches out to him. But I, I was challenged. Um, this is more fresh for me. So. You know, maybe in, in two months, I'll disagree with my own self <laughs> on this. But um, I just read Helen Bond's The First Biography of Mark, where she really ties uh, Mark's writing to ancient uh, bi biographies, Greco-Roman biographies. And she made an interesting argument that in, in biographies, that the main point is not the secondary characters, hardly ever. The main point is always pointing to the main character. And so she, she kind of argued that we've overdone secondary characters and the characterization of them. Uh, you, I, I think we could push that argument too far as well. But I think the point of this passage is that Jesus is the Messiah and he's more than that and he's bringing his people. So I would actually push us to say, let's focus on Jesus's identity, maybe even more than Peter's response. Um, okay. But, but yeah, I mean, there's still some interesting things about Peter, and Peter's become, going to become more prominent as the narrative goes sure. on. But I want to push us to first say, what does this say about Jesus? And then I think actually underneath of that, you can say, yeah, he's bringing his people, but they have to have faith. And I think that's going to push us forward to uh, the Canaanite woman who has faith as well, right? Mm -hmm. she, she, she actually shows great faith, in some sense, greater faith than Peter. So again, there's a sense in which He's redefining what it means to become a part. It's not, it's not based, on, based on ethnicity, but it's based on the, the great faith that the person has in yeah. who he is. So let's look at that passage there in chapter 15. Before we get to the Canaanite woman, though, we're introduced to the Pharisees and the scribes who come to Jesus from Jerusalem. So is Matthew doing something by pairing these characters together? So the Pharisees and the scribes and then the Canaanite woman here? 
Yeah, so I think he's contrasting the response. You'd expect the Pharisees and the scribes, those who have studied uh, the the traditions of the Torah and even have an oral tradition, that they would be the ones who really understand the symbols that Jesus is doing, these actions. But they come before him kind of questioning him in terms of why are your disciples not following these oral traditions? And so very early on in Matthew, if you look at actually Matthew chapter 2, I think it is, you know, Herod asked the scribes, hey, where does the Messiah hail from? <laughs> where is the Messiah going to be born? And they're like, oh, yeah, Bethlehem. They know the scriptures. Like they, 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 they know the answers, but they can't see that this person is right in front of them. Like it's so interesting that Matthew will put that quote in the the kind of mouths of those who would contest Jesus. Hmm. And so from the very, I'm bringing that up because from the very beginning of this narrative, Matthew is setting up that those who you would expect would be, be able to see really what Jesus is doing and who he is, that he's the long awaited Messiah, the hopes of Israel. They're the ones who aren't seeing it. So they come and they really test him. They, they want, they don't think he's following the Torah as he ought. Now, they, I think in some sense, their desires are warped. In some sense, they're pure. They want, um, they want Israel to be pure because that's what Yahweh has commanded them in the Old Testament. But what Jesus is going to do is somewhat redefine that purity for them. On the other hand, as you noted, the kind of next story is the Canaanite woman. And so she's going to have great faith. See, you've actually got, right, this interesting pairing of Peter. Oh, you have little faith. And then you have the Pharisees and the scribes come. And then you have the Canaanite woman. So there, there we have kind of he's revealing who he is. And then what are the response? What it, and I think Matthew's calling out, what is your response? Is he going to be, as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is he going to be a stumbling block to you? Or is he going? are you going to see him as the wisdom of God? You mentioned that in responding to the Pharisees that Jesus is redefining purity. Does that redefinition just mean getting rid of ritual and purity laws altogether? It, it kind of seems that way when you read verses 10 to 19. Yeah, so that is a really difficult question <laughs> that I want to be really careful with. Um, and, you know, my view, I don't know if I'd say it's changed, but it's definitely nuanced over the years. I think when I first started studying, I would be more comfortable with saying, yeah, he just gets rid of purity laws and then move on. I think more recent scholarship, um, using a big word, but kind of anti-supersessionist scholarship has made me rethink some of these texts and start to recognize, okay, if Jesus um, in the Sermon on the Mount says, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law, that would include ritual purity laws right and so i i I, so i want to be careful with how i I speak about these things because i'm kind of coming to a more i would just argue probably more nuanced understanding of this so in this section jesus is responding and he said to, to the washing of hands which is an oral tradition and he says it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person but that which comes out of the mouth mouth which defiles a person and we need to remember that impurity is not always sin, right? So you tending to the sick, you would be impure. Uh, having sexual relations, you would be impure. Giving birth, you would be impure, right? So I think our tendency is to say, oh, he, un- he undoes impurity laws because impurity laws are 
right. sinful things. And no, no, no. The, the impurity is it, there's some overlap between the two, but there's not always overlap. But I think what's what we need to understand about this is it's clear that Jesus is responding to a human tradition that they've developed. So the washing of hands is not found in the Old Testament, except maybe for priests as they go into the temple or tabernacle. So it's a part of the Talmud, the oral tradition. And I think in 15, uh, two through three, in those verses, um, he they say, why do you break the tradition of the elders? And he answered them, why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? Notice that Jesus is very clear to distinguish God's commandment from your tradition. And then in 15.9, he quotes from Isaiah there, and he says, They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. So there's a very clear distinction between this is a human tradition that you have said that we need to do. So I just want to put that on the table and say, to answer this question, we need to understand what he's responding to. So that, that doesn't make the answer <laughs> that much easier, but it does make it a little bit. I think the answer is complex. It's best to interpret it with Jesus's view of the law more generally in Matthew. He, I think he's clarifying the true intention of the law. True defilement is not external and ritualistic, but internal and moral. And that was the intention of the impurity laws all along. So that's how I would understand it, if that makes sense. So he's, he's not getting rid of the ritual laws, but he's actually pressing into the deeper meaning of them. Um, this, so this doesn't necessarily undo, undo purity laws for Jews, but it does point to the reality behind them, which does push towards the new era that Jesus is bringing in. So I want to say all that, but I also want to say in 1511, can I just keep, you, I want to hear your responses, but in 1511, then he says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but that which comes out of the mouth, that defiles a person. Now, that seems to have pretty big implications for food laws. So I've said all that, but I, I do think he is preparing us for the Canaanite woman episode, which follows right after this, right? It's not what goes into the person that defiles them, but that which comes out of them. And so I think that is leading us towards this Canaanite woman story where, you know, in Mark, he, he adds in chapter 7, thus Jesus declares all foods clean. Matthew, so the big question is, um, is, is Matthew's leaving that out if he's relying on Mark? Is that intentional to where he doesn't want to say that? Or should we imply that in his, you know, like, how, how do you understand yeah. Yeah. him not leaving that out? Um, so, so that's, that's really difficult. Um, it, it's interesting, though, that if it's so clear that Jesus is changing food laws, that Peter doesn't get that, or at least he doesn't follow that in Galatians 2. But I think it probably took Peter time to really understand it. He has to have another vision of that. Um, so, yeah, this is, it's a really hard text. It's the, the issue, I think, is if I were to like give a big picture, the true issue here is not hand washing, but condemning people based on your human rules while ignoring what God has explained matters most. And that's internal purity justice, mercy, faithfulness. Jesus is pressing. Right. So I, I like to say Jesus is pressing towards the true intention of the law. 
And I, I don't, let me just say this clearly, I don't think that means Jews wouldn't practice some of those rituals still. Right. But I think he, Jesus would, and Paul would come back and say, well, why are you doing that? And if it's for the basis of your salvation, then you need to think about what Jesus actually came for. So that that might sound like a lot of contradictions, sure. but I'm trying to be careful with the text. <laughs> the other, you mentioned this already. I mean, there is this idea of there are the weightier matters of the law and the lighter matters, right? And it, mm-hmm. part of, I think, what's going on here is they are propping up, like you say, it's a tradition that's not even necessarily one of the lighter matters within the Torah, yeah. Right. And yeah. they're using it to invalidate doing what, it, it, according to Jesus, the weightier matter. Right. That God that's requires. Right. That's right. Um, I and that's, I think his response helpful. about about the stomach is in response to that. What I what, so I've just been working on Acts and it was it's very clear to me that Paul continues to follow the Jewish law and acts mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. to at least to a certain extent. And so that challenged me even in my own reading to think, okay, something's happening here where I, he, he's living within a transition period, certainly, but that he still thinks it's okay post-Jesus resurrection, ascension, to follow those ritual right. laws. And if you go to Acts 15, you know, the, the Jerusalem council doesn't say Jews don't do, don't circumcise anymore. Right. They, says, they say Gentiles, you don't have to. Right. <laughs> and so we have to be really careful because I think we read that text typically as like, oh, nobody has to circumcise anymore. And they're just saying, Gentiles, you don't have to do that to become a, become a part of God's covenant community. Yeah. They don't actually say anything about what Jews need to do. Um, so uh, you just need to be, that, that's where I think I've become a little more careful in how I speak about these things. I do think it's important that the food laws are not in place anymore because that's a table fellowship issue. So okay. as, the, as, the, as the time goes on, it becomes very clear, like in the revelation of Peter, that I, I don't think the food, um, this is my opinion, you know, people yeah, sure, will disagree sure. with me, but sure. the food laws don't apply in the same way because that will cause division between Jews and Gentiles. So I, I do think we also need to be careful to not, um, you know, we typically say, well, what about all of the ritual laws? But we have to be careful and say, well, maybe there are, we need to be more specific which which ones we're talking about as well. Sure, sure. <laughs> and so be more precise with that. Um, there, there is something, you know, we, you asked about bread at the beginning and maybe there's something here with the, like I said, the bread is a table fellowship issue. Mm-hmm. And as we come to the Canaanite woman and the Gentile feeding and so forth and so on, like that, that that's all revolving in kind of their minds, like the food, the food issue is a big deal. The response that Jesus gives to the Canaanite woman does not strike me as very compassionate, right? We have all these statements in the Gospels about how Jesus is so compassionate, uh, but we read that he did not answer a word, right? <laughs> She's calling to him. Um, and then he says something like, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, right? When she's to uh, heal her daughter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what's going on here? Why is he so hesitant I mean, it seems like he's withholding compassion from her. Yeah, so 1524, uh, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, Typically, we read Matthew, and we think about the Great Commission, where he sends his disciples into all nations. And we just assume that's been the mission all along. But actually, in chapter 10, 
uh, maybe verse five or seven, that he sends the disciples, hey, say, go nowhere among the, amongst the Samaritans, only go to Israel. So it's very clear throughout Matthew's gospel, although there are indications that Jesus continues to welcome Gentiles, that the mission is to Israel. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And now you might think, well, that doesn't help answer my question. That still seems not very compassionate. But you got to go back to the Old Testament and remember it's through Abraham's family that the whole world was to be blessed. So uh, to use bigger terms, it's through the particular that the blessing to the universal comes. And so it's not that Jesus is rejecting the universal or the Gentile, but he's saying, I must redeem Israel so that the blessing will come to the Gentiles. So Earlier on with the Magi coming, the Centurion, the Canaanite woman, I think those are what we call like proleptic kind of signs of Gentiles coming in. And you have that actually in the Old Testament as well. You have the nations actually coming into Israel uh, in a different way in the Old Testament. So why does he hesitate? He hesitates because the official Gentile mission hasn't begun until after the resurrection. There's a whole book on this uh, by Matthias Conrad, actually, who argues that Jesus, the mission to the Gentiles doesn't begun, begin until Jesus as the Messiah becomes Lord of heaven and earth. There's a sense in which the resurrection and the ascension kicks off this mission that he's now become the reigning, ruling, messianic king over the whole earth. And I think there's something to that, that there's actually movement within the Gospel of Matthew to say his main mission throughout all of Matthew is to the, to Israelites. So right, right. when the Canaanite woman comes to him, he responds and says, it's not your time yet, basically. <laughs> like, your time is coming, but it's not your time yet. So um, that, 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 again, doesn't answer all of our questions. But um, sure. so then he goes on to say, verse 26, he answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And I mentioned this earlier. Man, this is this is really difficult. Like, what is he saying here? So. So, as I mean, I said, we have we we have we have uh, insults in English, right? That yeah. use dog language <laughs> that you don't. We we won't repeat on the podcast. <laughs> but you know, in Arabic too, if you call someone a kalb, a kalb, your dog, it's like yeah. really, it's really offensive, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what's going on here? So some people think Jesus. Um, like many Jews of that time, would is displaying kind of ethnocentrism, racism, and even sexism. I don't think <laughs> Jesus sinned in any way and that he didn't have those views of Gentiles, although there is a shift in salvation history that he's respecting. Okay. Um, others think, so I'm just giving you some options and then I'll give you my, <laughs> my opinion. Sure. Others think the reference to dog is maybe positive and affectionate, like little dogs. So you have like a little pet yeah. dog, like, hey, it's not your time yet, but you can come to the table a little later. Um, sure. I, I tend to think that's probably anachronistic. Okay. And it's more, our, I, don't, uh, I don't know if you've been to um, more third world countries. Dogs are not always viewed as pets in every culture. <laughs> And I'd say more likely in this culture, dogs are just kind of around and they eat the scraps and you know what I mean? Like they're not, they're not like how we view little dogs as pets that we bathe and so forth and so on. So, um, yeah, I just don't kind of thing. Yeah. They're not not insiders. And I'm not an expert. I haven't done a lot of dog work in in Jewish, (laughs) but, (laughs) but I'm not sure that that fits historically or contextually. And if, if somebody can prove that it does, Great. Well, we, we, found your next, 
book project. <laughs> That's right. Dogs in the first century. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's racist. I don't think it's sexist. But I do think he's using jarring words about his mission as a means of forming faith in her or for having her to show her true faith. So dogs were viewed as unclean. So I think that link between she would have been viewed as unclean, but his jarring words. So I do think it's jarring. I don't actually think we want to press away from that. We can explain it away and be like, oh, it's just a fine statement. No, I think they're jarring words. His jarring words actually invite her to demonstrate the depth of her faith. So um, I, so this is the example I give in class, and maybe it's a terrible example. But if you remember the Shawshank Redemption, there's a scene in that movie for all those who need anecdotes. Here's your anecdote, right? Um, there's a scene in that movie where an inmate approaches Andy, who's been thrown into prison. And he's become the librarian in the prison because he's educated. He's going to organize the library. He's actually going to do the finances. Mm-hmm. But this inmate comes who has no education. And Andy's uh, the main kind of protagonist is helping people get their high school equivalency education while locked up, uh, while locked up. And the inmate comes in and he says, Hey, I want to get my high school kind of equivalency education. Show me the books I need to read. And Andy replies to him. I don't waste time with losers. And Andy's doing that because he wants him to go ahead and do the education. And he knows that that will be a challenge to him. So he, he doesn't actually think he's a loser, but he wants to weigh his tenacity and his degree of desire. So Andy actually wants to help him, but only if the inmate is willing to actually take that step. So uh, maybe that doesn't completely help answer this, but I think Jesus is actually doing a little bit of a poke, like you're unclean according to the Jewish mindset, but he wants her to show her great faith because he knows she has great faith. So then she replies, yes, Lord. Even, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table. And then he says, oh, woman, great is your faith. Uh, let it be done for you as you want. So I think it's a it's jarring words to bring out in her her true faith that Jesus knows she has. Do you, do you think when, um, so Jesus says, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, right? And she says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Is there like is, is there a way to read this that it's like yes she's disagreeing with Jesus actually and saying actually Jesus it is right to feed the dogs from the children's table <laughs> or is she saying yes you are right lord it is not right and then you know she gives a qualification but the dogs they just eat whatever falls from the scraps of the table Yeah I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that um okay. my sense is that she's agreeing with him that it's not yeah. her time yet but she's disagreeing with him and saying, like, look, Gentiles are coming in. (laughs) We might not be the primary mission, but as the centurion shows faith, as others are showing faith, you, we are being welcomed into this new community. So it's, for me, it's kind of a yes, no, she, she's not disagreeing actually with his uh, kind of view that it's not Gentile time yet, but she is saying, but look, I, I've I've followed your <laughs> I followed right. your ministry. There's there is something going on here. It's it's okay for me to get the crumbs at this point, mm-hmm. uh, although it's not completely time for the Gentile mission to begin. Sure. In chapter sixteen, verses uh, thirteen through twenty-eight, uh, we have here Peter make this you know massive declaration about Jesus. Right. So Jesus asks. Uh, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. 
He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. All right, so we've got a, this is a pretty, you know, uh, big moment, I think, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. And what does Jesus's uh, response to Peter mean here? Um, or maybe we can even begin with Peter's confession. What exactly is he confessing? And what does Jesus's response mean when he says that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church? Yeah, so when Peter says you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, I tend to think Peter doesn't understand um, Nicene Trinitarian doctrine at this point. Okay. Um, so that he's saying you are you are the Jewish Messiah. Like I understand now. Some people think you're just a prophet. So we've been alluding to this. There's a lot of mosaic traditions, Elijah, Elisha traditions going on. Some people are saying you're just like them or Jeremiah, but I'm saying you're more than that. You're the you're the Jewish Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the one we've been waiting for. So P- Peter, heaven has revealed this to him, but Peter, this is a key moment in the Gospel of Matthew. Peter understands, revealed to him by heaven, that Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. Now, when he says the son of the living God, I think Christian readers will be like, well, what does that mean? Well, there's two ways to read son of the living God. Psalm 2, 7, the son of God is just his anointed king. So I tend to think Peter's still understanding you're just the anointed king from Psalm 2, 7. Um, but I also think Matthew post-resurrection, post-ascension. Um, so, so there's two different ways of reading this. How did Peter understand it when he said it? And how did Matthew understand it when he wrote it? I tend to think Matthew is understanding there's probably a deeper meaning to that as well. Okay. But I think in the first reading, a historical reading, we should understand Peter is saying, you're the Jewish Messiah. Right. So if he's the Jewish Messiah, he's the king, right? He's the, yep. mm-hmm. he's the king of Israel. Um, then we have this statement about giving to Peter the keys of the kingdom, which is yeah. right. So Messiah is the king, but then he's going to give the keys of the kingdom to Peter. Those are, um, that's a thor- thor- symbol for authority, I think. Okay. So Jesus says, I have uh, in Revelation, right? I have authority over death and Hades, I think is what okay. he says in Revelation 1. So and you, the keys of David comes from the Old Testament. And so I think he's saying, Peter, uh, because you have confessed this, I give you authority. Uh, And you are now the rock upon which this church, this ecclesia, this new gathering will be built. Uh, And I give you authority in terms of to say this is good or I accept this or I release this to bind and loose. So he's giving Peter uh, and I think Matthew 18 by implication, the church as well is the same language is used in Matthew 18. But he's giving Peter some sort of authority saying, I'm going to build my church upon you and that and upon that confession. And I think that's played out in Acts. Peter is the first one who goes out and he preaches at Pentecost and 3000 are saved. And I think the church is formed at that point. Um, So you want me to get into debates about how to understand this just briefly, though? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is hotly disputed, right, in terms of like (laughs) Catholic and Protestant uh, readings of this, right? Like. Catholics really want to hone in on it's Peter in particular, right? And there's a kind of succession, right? That happens from Peter. Uh, Whereas Mm -hmm. Protestants really want to 
fixate on right the confession like you mentioned right yeah so so catholics like you said want to focus on peter's office and succession while protestants believe it's peter's faith and his confession not peter as a person yeah. and i actually think uh i'm a protestant so uh, i'll talk about i don't think let me say this first i don't think there's any indication of succession in this text so that's why i'm a protestant like there's okay. it doesn't there, there's no sense of succession he gives it to peter but I do think Protestants have overreacted to Catholic interpretations of this. And they said, oh, it's not about Peter at all. But I don't think you can divide the person from his faith, from his confession. It's all of those things. He is giving Peter a unique role. But I just, I just don't see any, any sense of succession. So Jesus blesses Peter, Petra, Petras, right? Mm -hmm. Specifically because of his confession, because of his faith. But that faith was given to him. So Peter does, as I say, play a prominent role in the establishment of his church. So I don't want to, I don't want to overreact as a Protestant to maybe the succession of Peter and say, no, it's nothing about Peter. I think, I think the, there is a focus upon Peter here and what he gives him. So yeah, um, yeah that, that's a short answer, but that, that's where it lands. And perhaps also his place among the apostles, would you say is important? Yeah, I think he's, he's first. He, there's a sense in which Peter is, is, is identified there as you are going to lead this new movement. And um, again, I don't see any indication though in the New Testament that then his children or his progeny become sure, sure. the ones who carry on that tradition. So then we have Jesus talking about how suffering will be a part of his experience and then the experience of his disciples and the rebuke to Peter. And then at the end of chapter 16, we see in verses 27 and 28, these words, for the son of man is to come with his angels and the glory of his father. And then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Now this sounds like it's referring to a kind of second coming and judgment, but then yeah. Jesus says, verse 28, truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How are we supposed to understand that? Yeah, a lot. again, a lot of people argue Jesus is mistaken there, um, that the kingdom didn't come when he expected. But if you look at all of the synoptic gospels, that phrase occurs right before the transfiguration. And you have a temporal marker in 17.1, at least in Matthew, after six days. So it's immediately following that statement. Jesus took them up on the mountain. He transfigured before them. So I think that's a reference to the transfiguration. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here, three of you specifically, who will not taste death, right, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And you're like, wait, but the transfiguration is not that. But back up to the earlier verse, uh, in verse 26, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each one according to what he has done. So this gets into how we understand the transfiguration. The transfiguration, though, is a preview of Jesus's what we call parousia glory, his ascension and return glory. And if you actually look at the transfiguration, there's a cloud, there's two men that appear in white. And that, that's all the language from Acts 1, 9 through 11. That's the language from Daniel 7. Um, Mark 14 says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Mm -hmm. Philippians 2, 9 says, you will see the Son of Man exalted at the right hand of God. Revelation says he's a bright shining figure in the heavens on the throne. Stephen and Paul both see this bright shining figure. So the transfiguration is a preview of the son of man coming back. So it's a proleptic vision of what's going to happen at the end. And so, yes, they're getting a, a vision of what is about to occur. And he says, there's some of you standing here who will see that. And this is, this is really important because Jesus has just said, or Peter has just said, Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus has said, well, I'm going to die, right? 
Right. And Peter's all confused. So now Jesus shows him, he gives him hope. There's going to be glory to come. Just, just has to go through the cross first. So the transfiguration is a scene of hope for him saying, and, and the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, right? It's a scene of hope saying, yes, I am going to suffer, but that will lead to ultimate glory. And so I think this is a, a time of assurance for them. It's, it's interesting that he says, don't tell the other disciples. They won't understand yet. But for them, he's like, look, the suffering won't be the end of the story. There will be glory to come. Right. Now, why are Elijah and Moses there up on, the, you know, up on the mountain with Jesus? Why those two figures? Yeah. So I, I'm working on a book on this right now, and I think I identified eight interpretations of that. Um, so I'm not going to go through all of those, but many people yeah. say, uh, well, they represent the law and the prophets. And that fits well in some sense for Matthew's kind of law and prophet. He completes all of that. Okay. Um, I don't think that answers all of the questions about why Moses and Elijah are there. So let me give you, because we don't have much time. I won't go through all eight. I think, <laughs> I think it's Moses and Elijah on the mountain because they both asked to see God and they both did so on the same mountain, Mount Horeb. So there's a story of Moses where he says, let me see your face. And basically Yahweh says to him, no, you can't, you'll die. I'll show you my back. This is Exodus 33. And I've, I've even got to cover you, my, cover you with my hand or, or you know what I mean? Like I, you can't see everything. Right. And then interesting, Elijah uh, goes up on the same mountain. This is after Mount Carmel, uh, first Kings, I think like 19. Mm -hmm. And uh, he also goes up on the same mountain. And it's actually in a cave as well. And the Lord doesn't appear to him in the earthquake. He doesn't appear to him in fire, but he appears to him as a soft whisper. And there's a sense in which they're both longing to see God, but they don't see the fullness of God. And so I tend to think actually those two figures, the main reason they're there is because now they see the fulfillment of the hopes. So John speaks about no one has seen God, John 1.18, but Jesus Christ has revealed him. So again, from a confessional perspective, I think what's happening here is there's the double sonship of Jesus going on here because the father says, you are my beloved son, right? Um, he's the son in terms of he's the Messiah, but he's also the eternally begotten son. It's the one that Moses and Elijah longed to see and they couldn't see him, but now they see him in the face of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Now, what's the significance of the voice that we hear, right? This is my beloved son. Does that echo any particular Old Testament passages uh, and other places in Matthew as well, you think, that Matthew's trying to connect here? Yeah, so it, it very clearly echoes the baptism where the right. same words come from the heavens. Uh, it also goes back, I'd argue, to Genesis 22, verse 2, where um, Abraham is talking about Isaac has his one and only beloved son. And interesting, okay. there's sacrificial imagery there, right? Right. And then it also goes back to Psalm 2-7, as we've referenced a few times. Uh, the father says to him today, you are my son, today I become your father. And so, you know, you have a designation of Jesus as the Messiah in the baptism. Mm -hmm. But I think this is the confirmation. After the prediction of suffering, this is still right. my son. This is still my right, son, right. but he's the suffering son from Isaiah 42, the one with whom I'm well pleased, Isaiah 42, 1. So there's, I mean, we could, I think we need a double click on that. There's a historical meaning. There's a Christological meaning. There's an eternal meaning to a lot of those things. Okay. But 
we probably don't have time for that. But I think the depth of what Psalm 2-7 is doing, it's not just about David. It's not just about Christ's resurrection. It actually goes back there. Uh, Origen said um, in Psalm 2-7, today I've become your father. There's an eternal today. <laughs> There's no today with the father and son. Right. So th that must be a statement in eternity. Now I'm going into more uh, systematic theology there. But that that's where I'm arguing in my book, I'm going to argue that you can't just understand the transfiguration as a revelation of Jesus's messianic glory, but it's also his divine glory. It's both and. It has to be, which is okay. against the modern consensus, but that's okay. So they see both Moses and Elijah there, yeah? But they seem confused about Elijah, right? So they say, and the disciples ask him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things. But I tell you that all, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man is about to suffer at their hand. And then he goes on to talk about John the Baptist, right? The disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. Yeah. But what's going on with the confusion? They see Elijah, but then they're confused that Elijah must come first. Shouldn't they just say, oh, yeah, look, now Elijah's come. So now yeah. that that helps us understand that here is the son of man or like, why are they confused about this? Yeah, I think they're confused about the timing of everything. Like, okay, you're the Messiah, you're going to suffer, but you're going to have glory. And I, I think Peter's even statement, let me build three tents for you. He thinks the glory is there to stay. And then, you know, okay. Moses and uh, Elijah disappear. And I think they're just like, what, what is happening here? So we've seen Elijah. So I, maybe it's not very satisfying to you, but we've seen Elijah and now he's gone. Oh, I see. So, I see. so what's going on? Like, where, where, <laughs> when is this? Like in Acts 1, they're like, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom now? I think they're just like totally flabbergasted about the timing of everything. Like right. they expected the kingdom to come in this certain way. And Jesus is showing them like a preview of his future glory. Mm -hmm. This is why the transfiguration is so hard because it doesn't fit into the storyline in the same way. Like, you know, like it, it's a preview of what is to come, but he's like, no, not yet, not yet. And right. so I just tend to think the disciples are thinking like, what, what's happening here? Like, where, okay. where is it? And he, he's like, no, Elijah has come. It's John the Baptist. You, you need to follow what's happening here. Then comes the cross. Then comes the resurrection. Then comes the ascension. And then comes my return in glory. So for us, the question is like, how do you not get this? But for them, they're they're living this in real time. Like they, right, right, right. they're like, I, I don't understand what's happening. I thought if you're if you're the glorious king, then let's do this now. Why did Elijah just leave? I think they expected Elijah, like I said, the three tents to stay and the glory right, right, to be revealed right. at that point. So uh, continuing on the theme of confusion, they come down the mountain. And then there's this episode where you have the disciples unable to cast out a demon. So yeah. was there a connection there with the transfiguration that this comes right afterwards? And then what does Jesus mean in the midst of this episode where he says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move mm -hmm. and nothing will be impossible. For you. Yeah. So linking it to the transfiguration I think they expect the kingdom to come in fullness now. And Jesus is showing them you haven't been fully transformed yet. That is still to come. So it goes back to the timing thing. They still, they're like, okay, you showed us your glory. So now let's, let's go do this thing. Let's go with all power and cast out all demons. And he's like, no, we're still living in the time where you need more faith. <laughs> so you expect this radical transformation to just happen at the snap of a finger but you can't even cast you can't even cast out demons right now. So 
I, you know, God works slowly and, and Jesus in some sense works slowly. And he's like, not time yet, not time yet. But what you need in the midst of the time before the glorification, the transformation, the ultimate transformation of your own bodies and of all creation is great faith. Great faith is just a little bit of faith. Um, what I'm asking is just the size of a mustard seed. Now, when he says, um, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there and it will be moved. Nothing will be impossible for you. Some people view that as a, in reference to the temple on this mountain. Like th this is where the temple stands. I tend to just view it as a metaphor. <laughs> this is an analogy that if you have small faith, you can move big things like that mountain over there. Mm -hmm. And so I don't necessarily tie it to the temple. I just, it's, it's, it's an analogy. It's a way of speaking to say, what I'm asking from you is just a small amount of faith that this will truly happen. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for walking us through this text. There is a lot that's going on in this <laughs> section of Matthew. Uh, to conclude our time with our guests, we like to ask them for a blurb, right? You know, the blurb that biblical scholars seem to have perfected where you recommend a book, but it doesn't have to be a book. It could be anything that you think our listeners might enjoy. So what's a blurb that you have for us? Um, so I know you do this, so I, I wrote one out because I wouldn't be able to do it well on the fly. So <laughs> we, just, <laughs> we just finished the Wing Feather Saga, which is Andrew Peterson's um, fiction tales of this Wing Feather family and this whole kind of world that he created. So we just went on a road trip. We finished the fourth book. So I'm going to recommend those because I thought they were really good storytelling and the books progressively, I thought, got better even. And so if you're like, oh, the first one was pretty good, like I thought the storytelling even got better as it went along. So here's my blurb for it, okay? Um, Peterson tell, tells the tale of the Wingfeather family, which is full of wonder and excitement. You will laugh, cry, and hope that this story never ends as Peterson draws deep from the wells of the Christian tradition and exemplifies how beauty can uniquely draw us to our maker. Thank you, Patrick. I was hoping that our guests would actually have blurbs like that. <laughs> Few of them have actually pulled that off. So I really appreciate that you took the time. To if everything else was a failure, that was a win. Well, thanks for taking the time, Patrick, to guide us and our listeners through this kind of uh, winding uh, yep. text in Matthew. And for taking us up on the mountain where, as we know, there were three. Right, Jesus and Elijah and Moses just says, so if you listener, you know, came up on the mountain with us and were transfigured by the illuminating conversation, we hope that you'll go on Apple podcast uh, and give us your best rating. And you can also find us on the two where you can subscribe and find uh, all our other episodes on Matthew. Uh, until next time, take care. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelder, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.